First Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 18. <clears throat> now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid, and he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree, and he fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Mahola, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. And this is God's word. I'm going to share an interesting phenomenon with you. For the better part of the last 80 or so years, you can make a case and say that ever since the Enlightenment uh, era, you know, in the 1800s, people have been trying to live a life without God. No new news, right? That's, That's pretty common. You see that everywhere. But recently... But recently, we've been finding that, they've been finding that they can't live without God. They can't. They've been trying to get rid of him. They've been trying to live without him. And they realize they can't. Scholars and commentators are now saying 
that even with all of our technology and science and education, we're finding that technology, science, and education are insufficient to answer some of the most important questions in our lives. Why are we here? What's the problem with the world? Why, what is my purpose? Where am I headed? And so today, we're seeing a resurgence of spirituality, not necessarily just the church, all across the board, but we're seeing a return to the church as well. Now, of course, people, because they're looking at other faiths as well, they're, at, they're not asking, is there a God anymore? But what they're really asking today is, which God do I pursue? Which God do I follow? I mean, they're not saying it like that, but they're kind of saying it like that. Now, this past season, there's been a lot of suffering. There's been a lot of isolation. There's uh, been a lot of illness, a lot of risk, a lot of death, a lot of worries. And we're starting to ask that question, we're not quite there yet, but post-season, we're asking the question more intentionally today, why are we here? What is life about? And it's because this season has brought about such an intense loneliness, and people are consumed by anxiety and are consumed by sadness and consumed by fear. There are people here, without a doubt, I mean, I have to say this as a pastor, that without a doubt, there are people here who've contemplated taking their own life. And so I thought I'd take the opportunity, it's a, it's a rare opportunity to stand in on behalf of a brother, to go into the story of Elijah, and it's really my, a part of my extended prayer for all of uh, our Metro family today. Because Elijah lived in a very similar world. Where did he get? I mean, in the midst of death and risk and running and depression, where did he get the answers? Where did he find the comfort? Where did he get the sensibility of what is real in life? What is the real reality in life? Now, let me offer you some context before we actually get into this text. I have to do that. Ahab, we read right in verse 1, is the king of Israel. And Jezebel is his wife. She's the queen of Israel. Israel is a divided country right now. And Ahab takes Israel as the king. And they're incredibly idolatrous. They're evil. They're putting to death the prophets of God. They've abandoned God and they've turned their people against God to Baal. And so Elijah... Elijah's a prophet, and if you know anything about the role of a prophet, a prophet, his sole role, I mean, it's a big role, God uh, sends a prophet as a prosecuting attorney on behalf of God because the country, the nation, has fallen away and abandoned his law. And whenever the country has abandoned his law, the representative of that country is the king because the king has that kind of power because he's turned his people away from God the prosecuting, the prosecuting attorney goes straight to God on behalf, goes straight to the king on behalf of God as his prosecuting attorney to tell them either A, you've turned uh, people wicked. You've had a hand in this. You've oppressed the poor. You've oppressed the marginalized. There's no justice now in this country. You have turned the people against the word of God. People have forgotten about the word. They've abandoned God. So Elijah, he gathers a ton of people at Mount Carmel. And there he challenges these prophets of Baal in front of thousands of people. The king is there. 
and he says, it's going down today. He calls out the idolatrous prophet, the prophets and their God. And he says, I want you to pray to your God at this altar for the fire to come up, to burn up this sacrifice that you have offered to your God. And they pray, and they pray to do all sorts of things to get his attention, and there's nothing. There's absolutely nothing. But then Elijah prays. And as he prays, then the fire comes. And it's, not, it's an intense fire. It burns up the sacrifice. It burns up the wood in the sacrifice. It burns up the rocks of the altar, making up the altar, right? So the rocks are disintegrating. The ground around the altar is starting to vaporize. All the water, I mean, they just poured water to kind of prove this point. And all the water is licked up, it says, completely vaporized. Which is, in a sense, poetic because Baal was known as the Lord of the earth, the Lord of rain, the Lord of dew. He was the Lord of water because basically all those things make up the economic power of a country in an agrarian society. What does Elijah do? Oh, he's got it now. He's got them in his hands, right? The last verse of chapter 18, he storms up. He runs ahead of the king all the way to Jezreel. Jezreel at the time was the capital of Israel. So you have King Ahab and Jezebel trying to kill Elijah. Why does he go to the capital? Why? Clearly because he's so confident, oh, God's going to bring it now. This is the opportunity for God to wipe everybody out that went against him. This incident is going to be the turning point, and Israel's faith in God will return. But nothing happens. And Jezebel is now even more determined to kill Elijah now. And so Elijah's on the run. He's in despair. He's confused. He's isolated. He's disappointed. Because of this incident at Mount Carmel, it didn't change a single thing. And so he runs off into the desert, poetic, dry, isolated, lifeless, that's, that's where he is right now. And really what he's saying with his expression is, where is God? Where is this God that I've served all my life? Who is he? And if he's here, what's he like? Because I don't get him. That's what he's saying. I don't get him. The prophet of God in such a dark, isolated, lonely place. And yet in that darkness... In that isolation, literally, I mean, he's in, a, he's in a cave at one point. God shows Elijah who he is. And he's showing Elijah because he's showing us who he is. We who are in isolation and suffering and disappointed in God at times. Broken and upset, despondent and in despair, depressed. What do we learn from this? I'm just going to walk you through some points, Okay. One, the shepherding care of God. The shepherding care of God. Elijah, he's in despair. If you look at verse 3, before Elijah was bold. At Mount Carmel, he was strong. Now he's drained and exhausted, and he's scared. And, and along the way, at Beersheba, right, he lets his servant go. Why? This is not somebody who hires a servant to kind of clean his house. The servant, that word here, this is his, his ministry team. This is his staff. In a sense, he's laying off his team. 
And when you see a place that's starting to lay off their people, what does that mean? Things are starting to fall apart. Elijah is basically saying, I'm resigning. I'm letting go. It's done. I'm cooked. It's over. I've been there. Maybe some of you have been there. It's this terrible, sinking, defeated experience. And you get to verse 4, and Elijah, he doesn't do it himself. He says, God, take my life away. Just, just take it away. Guys, watch, watch a lot of movies. You watch The Departed. When Matt Damon's character realizes he's, he's in an elevator with Leonardo DiCaprio's character, right? And he's in an elevator and heading down because he's, he's arrested. It's over for him. He knows. It dawns on him. He says, he stops and he says, just kill me. Just, be, just, just get rid of me. Just kill me. He begs him, just let, just let me go. That's Elijah. Take my life. It's over. Just end my life here. What does God do? First, in verse 5, he sends an angel. And what does the angel do? Does he rebuke? Does he rebuke him? Does he give him gifts? Does he say, here's new power? Does he give him vision? I mean, he does that sometimes in the Bible. But he doesn't do any of these things here. You know what he does? He comes to Elijah and he touches him. And he makes him a meal. He makes him a meal, a cake of bread and water. And so Elijah eats and then he sleeps. That's what he needs. What does that tell you about God? Because that's not the God I grew up with. The God I grew up with is going to sit me down. And you know what you need to do? You need to have prayer time. You know what you need to do? Someone laughed because you went through that. You know what you need to do? We're going to have a Bible study. We're going to have Bible study. I need to tell you a little bit more about how you need to live your life. That's the God that I grew up with. That's the God that maybe Elijah grew up with. That's what he thought. But God here, he doesn't say, oh, you're depressed? There must be something wrong with you. Elijah, there's something wrong with your faith here. Because Christians don't get depressed. There must be something wrong. What's your prayer life like? Are you in sin? There must be some hidden sin in your life. You're not trusting God enough. God doesn't preach to Elijah here. By the way, this is the angel of the Lord. You only see that type of angel a few times in all of the Old Testament. This, in the Old Testament, usually, almost always, pretty much always, refers to Jesus Christ before he's incarnate, right, and comes into the world in the Gospels. And what does he do? On one hand, he doesn't instill him with great new vision and power. On the other hand, he doesn't give him great new rebuke or command. You know what he does? He goes out of his way, and he puts his hand on Elijah, and he comforts him twice. Comforts him twice. Elijah says, I want to die. Just end me. And then Jesus arrives. God arrives and takes out his hand and says, you need to sleep. You need to eat. 
You're hungry. You're emotional. You're tired. He tends to his physical need. He tends to his emotional need. And we're going to get to this. He tends to his psychological needs. He tends to his, his spiritual need. This isn't the end. He doesn't wait till the end to do this. This is the beginning. This is how the whole narrative begins. This is how it starts. God doesn't give Elijah what he wanted. The wind and the earthquake and the fire, that's it, wipe everybody out. He didn't give Elijah what he expected, but he gave him what he needed. His presence, his provision, rest, cake. You know, I imagine some of you, your kid barges in crying, you know, it hurts, it hurts, you know. And what do you do? You can't do surgery. But what you can do is give him cake. That's what I do. I give him cake. Uh, let me clean that up. Here's some cake, right? <clears throat> what does this tell you? God gets you. God is relational. God cares for you. In a sense, in a sense God is so human. He's more human than you are. You know, because you know what we do? Let's pray. You need to stuff. You're not doing it right. God says, he's more human than we are. He doesn't offer meds. He doesn't offer escape. You know, uh, he doesn't offer a boost in your self-esteem. He provides for your need, what Elijah needs. And he sits there, and Elijah twice, I'm alone. You know, People have abandoned you, and now they want to kill me because of you. You didn't help. Where were you? I want to die. He just listens. He didn't say, oh, no, well, hold on. Doctrinally, you are a little bit, that's inappropriate what you just said. (laughs) That's not what he does, right? He listens to him. And then he practically demonstrates his presence with provision, gives him exactly what he needs so that he's in a place where they can talk. And then he speaks into it. That is the shepherding care of God in the midst of disappointment, in the midst of despondency and despair, in the midst of discouragement. Always, when we say God is our Father, when, he's, when we say that God is Father God, on one hand, he's the Almighty God, but he is our Father. No one, if you have a good father, no one is going to tend to you and give you what you need and care for you. They will go starving. They will go hungry before they see you go hungry. They will suffer the pain before they, they want to see you suffer in pain. Elijah has enough strength, verse 8. He travels 40 days and 40 nights to go to Mount Horeb seeking God. When's the last time anyone here has ever done that? But for Elijah to even have the strength and be in a place to start seeking God, did God just need to give him more theology? Did he give him more Bible study, more commands, more rebuke? 
No, he gave him food. He gave him rest. He gave him his ear. Shepherding care. Secondly, we see how God works. Elijah goes to Mount Horeb. And uh, the passage here says it's the mountain of God. Because Horeb actually has a much more popular name. It's Sinai. That's where Elijah was going. And in verse 9, when he gets there, he goes to this cave. The literal word there in Hebrew, it's this hollow. It's this cleft. You know why it's important? Because centuries before Elijah, Moses went up the same mountain. Moses went up the same mountain. And he told God, I'm seeking you. Show me your glory. I want to see you. I want to know you intimately. I want to see your face. In other words, I want to know who you are in the most intimate way. And God takes Moses because if he shows God's beauty is so brilliant that his beauty, his brightness is so bright, it'll consume you. He knows that. And so he says, Moses, I'm going to tell you what. I'm going to put you in this cleft in the rock. And I'm going to pass by. You're going to see me. Right? Elijah, centuries later now, says, I want to see you. I want to know you. In verse 11, God says, I'm going to pass by. I want you to stand here. I'm going to pass by. Just like he did with Moses. Now, in verse 11, Elijah first gets this terrible wind. It's like a hurricane, a storm. It's so strong, it tears up all the rocks. And then he gets an earthquake. And then in verse 12, he gets a fire. Why does he get these things first? It's because most of the time when you see a wind, a hurricane, or an earthquake, or a fire in the Old Testament, you say, that's God. God is in these things. You saw it in the burning bush, right? Fire, right? In Exodus with Moses. You saw it with Moses when he was at Sinai. It's not that God is not in these things. But in verse 12, God ultimately comes in a still, small voice. Why is that important? Because most of us, I mean, if we're real, most of us here, when we're in doubt, when we're angry, when we're discouraged or upset, we don't want that still small voice. When's the last time any of y'all opened up your Bibles when you were discouraged? When's the last time any of y'all opened up your, your Bibles when you were angry or despondent or in despair? We don't want that still small voice. We want the fire. We want the earthquake. We want the proof. We want the presence. We want it live. We want it loud. Right? That's what we want. That's what Elijah wants. Then we can say, yeah, I believe. Most of us want or expect God to come as a wind or as an earthquake or as a fire. Then I will believe. That's what we say. Elijah's on Mark Hamill. And the fire comes down. He says, yes, yes, this is God. What? What? That's what he's doing, right? That's what he wants. That's what he expects. But then we get here in chapter 19. All of chapter 19, what do you see God doing? He puts on an apron and he starts cooking. And Elijah's like, no, no, that's not what I want. You see? And he's kind of like, you know, that's not what I want. You know, my son, when I'm playing with my son, he's not very old. He's like one, you know. 
but uh, I'll, I'll play around, I'll mess around with him. And then, like, if he doesn't like something, he instantly, he'll be laughing and all of a sudden, and he makes a sound. He just learned that, right? <clears throat> Elijah's saying, where's the power? Where's the fire? Two times, verse 10 and verse 14, he says, I've been zealous for you. What he's saying is, I've worked so hard for this. I had a plan, you see, and it was going perfectly. You came down in fire. Why didn't you meet me the rest of the way? I was so zealous for you, and now I'm the only one left. I'm alone. In other words, what he's really saying is, look, I'm pissed off. I'm upset. Can I say that? Am I allowed to say that? I can say that, right? (laughs) I'm pissed. I'm upset. I'm disappointed with you. You didn't show up for me. He blames God for his failure. But it's his view of God that's the problem. We often say, I need God to pull me through this. I need him to pull me through this. And before the disappointment, oh, we pray. In fact, the Asians, they have a penchant, historically known to just get on their knees and pray all night, all day. We go to the mountains and we just pray. That's what they say about Asians. I had a plan. We need the fire. I mean, you did it for Moses. But then he shows up in this still, small voice. He comes in weakness. He comes in darkness. He comes in our brokenness, in our disappointment, when we're most uncomfortable, when we are humble, when we are down, when we are down, way down, right? What does that show you? God's saying, look, I don't owe you a thing. I don't come on your terms. God doesn't come on our terms. You can't control me. You can't own me. You can't buy me. You can't earn me. You can't work for me. In a sense, Elijah brought, basically what he's saying is, Elijah, you brought this pain on yourself because you came to me for things when you should have been coming to me for me. You came to me for your plan when you should have been coming to me for me. Verse 15, he says, I have a plan. Verse 14, he says, I had a plan. Verse 15, God says, I have a plan. I want you to anoint Hazael and Jehu, and I want you to do this, and I want you to do that. And I want you to know that I'm not here to do and grant. I'm not a genie. We do some stuff, rub the lamp, and I give you three wishes. I'm not like your good luck charm that you discard because I didn't pull through for you. you don't, I don't come on your terms. I don't come because you have a plan and it's so brilliant. And I'm just, gonna, I'm just here to partner with you. If I were to cater to you on your terms, 
then I wouldn't be in control, would I? You'd be in control. And how's that going for you? Elijah didn't trust God, not at the heart. He trusted his own plans. It's called pride, apart from God. And then he failed, and he blamed God for it. It's also pride. That's the discontent, the source of his discontent. He didn't see his pride. He didn't see his desire to do things on his own terms. Sin is what? Essentially, doing things on your own terms apart from God. That's really what sin is. And then blaming God because things didn't work out. We get anxious because we're worried that God's not aligned with us. We get depressed because God didn't deliver. The issue, and God says something really cool. He says, I have, you're saying you're alone. I have Hazel. I have Jehu. There's 7,000 people out there that you haven't even met. You didn't even know that, did you? I got 7,000 people. The issue is not God has abandoned me. The issue is at what point did I abandon God? The issue is not God abandoned me. The issue is, at what point did I abandon God for my own plan? Most likely, I mean, Hazael, he was probably a worldly king. There's no mention of him as a godly king. What does that mean? God is saying, my plan is to use history, your circumstances, worldly people, broken people, evil and sin all over the world, the darkness that you're in. I'm here to use all those things to accomplish my plan for my glory, and for your good. Broaden your range. Don't tell me to broaden my range, because I see it all. Broaden your range. Broaden your vision. Is it logical to say, because I can't see God working, he must not be working? Is that logical to you? Because I can't see God show himself in my situation, he must not exist? Is that logical to you? Because I can't see what good can come out of my situation. There must be no good. Is that logical to you? One of the reasons we get so discouraged and so depressed is because we only see one way, our way, for God to work to redeem the world. What's the easiest way to get rid of evil? Evil. Wipe them all out. Let's get rid of them. Run them out of town. But think, here God is saying, I'm working in ways you can't see. I'm doing 10,000 things for my glory and for your good. Don't question. The question is not where is God in my life. The question is why don't I see God working? Why don't I see it? Because I know he's working. Elijah's own work, and it kind of answers the question, Elijah's own work, he's a religious person, Elijah's own zeal, actually prevented him from seeing what God was actually doing. Elijah only saw one solution. Might, power, bring the fire. That's what he says. But he overlooked the grace of God, the love of God, the gospel. God is going to be patient with evil. He's going to be patient with sin. Why is there so much suffering? God has a plan. 
and he's incredibly patient. And it doesn't go according to our plan. But he's been crafting it and executing for thousands of years. And we see it all through biblical history and lots of suffering, lots of brokenness. And yet we see at the end of that story, we see this amazing picture. In fact, Jesus Christ on the cross himself, God himself, crucified on the cross, lots of people standing around. What good can come from this? And yet it was the ultimate good. It was the ultimate salvation. God is going to be patient with evil. He's going to be patient with sin, patient with brokenness, and he's going to use broken people and sinful people like Hazael to bring people back to him. Oh, Elijah, oh, we are so self-absorbed and so self-brilliant, self-acknowledging, self-centered, and so narrow-minded. We learn how he works. God doesn't work. The way up is down. He doesn't come with might. He comes on his knees. He comes gently. He comes in weakness. He doesn't come with incredible power in the fist. He comes with the touch of a hand and he cooks. He's gentle. He's gracious. And so the last thing we're going to see here is we learn about his grace. What is that still small voice? I mean, we need to know because clearly God is saying, that's the ultimate way that I come. I don't come through the wind. I don't come through the earthquake. I don't come through the fire. Why? Notice, Elijah gets the earthquake. He gets the wind. He gets the fire. The rocks are like completely torn up around him. Can you imagine him standing there in a cleft and it's just beaten down and he goes unscathed. He is safe. Remember Mount Carmel? In Mount Carmel, there was a fire. And, and at the end of that fire, people fall down. They say, God is God, but nothing happens in the end. There's no effect. Twice, we, three times we see the power of God crashing against the rocks. Did that soften Elijah? Did that bring him to repentance? God is showing Elijah the very heart of all people. Elijah's saying, it's Mount Carmel, it's these people. God is saying, that's you. That's you. That's, that's, our, that's our hardness of heart. What will shape God's people? Because it isn't the wind. It isn't the hurricane. It isn't the earthquake. It isn't the fire. That didn't shape Elijah. It came didn't shape him. He says, it's my voice, my word, my spirit working through my word. On one hand, Christianity is a deeply personal experience. But on the other hand, it's a personal experience of a rational, understandable, hearable, processable reality and truth present through God's word. God is saying, if you want to know me, quit looking for that miracle, that one thing that's going to shape your life, that catharsis in your life. Go to my word. Hear my voice. Because the more you hear, the more you really hear. When I say really hear, I mean, I mean something we hear, but we need to really hear. The more we hear it, the more we listen to it, we're going to say, this is the voice of God. And when you hear it, then you will heed it. And the voice of God, it's not just teachings. It's not just commands. What's really going to shape you 
It's not just that he's so powerful. It's his love. It's his grace. It's his softness. It's his tenderness. Elijah wanted the wind and the earthquake and the fire, but if he got that, he would have been wiped out too. He would have been wiped out. That's God's implicit grace, why he doesn't always give us what we want. Elijah got the still small voice because when the wind and the earthquake and the fire came, he was hidden, he was hidden in the cleft of a rock. That's God's explicit grace. He mediates. He provides that mediator that will shield him from the wrath and the power and the might so that we get the relationship. Centuries before, uh, in Exodus, in the book of Exodus, Moses is hidden in a cleft of the rock, possibly this cleft of the rock. And so he's spared. He gets to experience God, and yet he's spared. And then centuries later, we look, Luke chapter 9, God brings Elijah and Moses with Jesus. Imagine that. On a mountain. They're together. And Jesus is glorified. He's transfigured. And they're talking about his death. Elijah, who wanted rescue. Moses, who wanted rescue. Elijah, who wanted to see God. Moses, who wanted to see God. And it all centers around the death of Jesus. There they are. They get to see God talking to Jesus. They get to see God himself. They're talking to Jesus. There, Moses and Elijah are standing with the very rock of their salvation, their true rock. Who is Jesus? On the cross. Jesus got the wind, didn't he? He got the earthquake, didn't he? How do you know that? Because in the Bible, it says on the cross, the rock split, the ground shook, the, the stones of the tombs rolled away. There must have been a wind. The ground shook and the rock split. These are all representative of God's presence and his judgment as a penalty for sin. So on the cross, what happened? The wrath of God is pouring out on Jesus for our sins. And so on the cross, Jesus Christ is receiving the cosmic hurricane. He's saying, I am riding the ultimate hurricane. I am riding the ultimate earthquake. I am receiving the ultimate fire of the penalty of God for my people, the judgment. But God wasn't in them. He wasn't present. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like Elijah, like Moses, I want to see you. I want to see you. Moses got the presence. Elijah got the presence. They were both shielded and protected in the safety of God, in the intimacy, in the relationship with God. But Jesus lost the presence. There was no still small voice. There was no presence. And so he was ripped apart on the cross. He was bleeding and pierced, torn to pieces. Why? So that his people would be shielded. The wrath of God coming before the cross so that we can stand and hide ourselves in the cleft of Christ, the rock which is Christ, who received the full penalty and wrath for our sins so that we get the intimacy and the relationship and the presence. You want to come to know God? 
Look to the cross. Look at Jesus. There you will see his love. There you will see his presence. There you will see his grace for you. Doesn't matter where you've been. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter what you thought about, what you looked at. Today, coming here, it doesn't matter. You're invited into his presence and his embrace. That's the love of God. Jesus didn't come to bring the judgment. He came to bear the judgment of God. And did you know all the while that he was on the cross? Not once did he say, bring the fire on these guys. You know what he said? Bring it on me. Bring it on me. There's a wonderful hymn that we don't sing because the music sucks. I'll be honest. It's a wonderful hymn. But it says at the end that Jesus Christ drank the dregs of God's wrath. You know what the dregs are? When you sip tea, there's little pieces at the bottom. There's still a little potency there because there's still a little power in that tea. So you pour more water and you drink, and you pour more water, you're drinking the dregs. Jesus Christ drank from the dregs of God's wrath until there was no more potency left. He took it all. He took it all. Musicians out there, take that song. Put some better music to it. We'll sing it. We will. We will sing it. Stop looking for the earthquake and the wind and the fire for something to happen to you, some miracle or sign or rescue from your problems as proof that, you know, all the while, Jesus was looking for God. My God, my God, you've forsaken me. But he was quoting from his word. You know that? He was quoting Psalm 22 the entire time. And so what comforted him, what gave him joy, what gave him remembrance and reminder of his mission and what he was doing, because it's not about what he wanted, it's not about what's on his terms, he's on the cross, did everything right, lived perfectly on the cross, and yet suffered and bleeding and dying. And not once did he say, where are you? Where are you? What's in it for me? That's not what he said. He said, where are you? I'm seeking you. And yet reciting scripture. That's what he did. The voice of God is still there. Stop looking for the sign. Look to the cross. There is your validation. There is the guarantee and assurance of God's love for you. It's going to point you, the cross is going to point you to the compassion of God, the sacrifice of God, the love of God. Well, how did God sacrifice? Isn't Jesus the one that paid the price? You ever give up your child and watch him die? For someone else, it's the sacrifice of God. You see the wisdom of God, the nurturing, shepherding care of God, the vision of God, the plan of God. You'll be able to see that God can use evil and suffering and darkness, your darkness, your brokenness, even your sinfulness as a way to bring you back to him. And if you're here and you're saying it's been a long road, 40 days and 40 nights, I've been wandering and I've been doing all sorts of, got myself into all sorts of stuff. But you hear, and the journey continues and the chapter is being written. Don't think about your plan and how God isn't accomplishing it for you. 
That's, you know, by the way, <clears throat> if you got the miracle, if you got the sign, if you got the earthquake, if you got the fire, will that help you to develop intimacy? You will be so scared. I'll tell you what will develop intimacy. The touch. The reminder. The softness. The provision. The counsel. If you're shaking, Jesus Christ took the ultimate earthquake. If you've been blown around, tossed back and forth, Jesus Christ rode the ultimate storm. Feel like you're just being consumed? Jesus Christ took the cosmic fire. He endured it all until there was none of him left for you. There is the assurance that God is loving. And he did that to make you unshakable. He did that to make you unmovable, immovable. He did that to make you unconsumable. Speak to him. Hide beneath him. Hide behind him. Rest in him. Union. Hear him. Let's pray.